Welcome to Logistics with Purpose, presented by Vector Global Logistics in partnership with Supply Chain Now. We spotlight and celebrate organizations who are dedicated to creating a positive impact. Join us for this behind-the-scenes glimpse of the origin stories, change-making progress, and future plans of organizations who are actively making a difference. Our goal isn't just to entertain you, but to inspire you to go out and change the world. And now, here's today's episode of Logistics with Purpose. Hi, I'm Christy Porter with Vector Global Logistics, and you are listening to another episode of the Logistics with Purpose series presented with our partner Supply Chain Now. So thank you. We're excited to have you join us. We're excited to have another great conversation today. So we're really looking forward to this. And today, my co-host for the episode is my teammate, Monica Rush. Money, how are you? Hi, Christy. Doing great. Happy to be here. How about you? I am good. We're coming today from three different locations, uh, two different countries. So we're going to have a great conversation about sustainability, carbon offsets, and somebody who knows a heck of a lot more than you or I do. So um, we're really thrilled to have Linda Kelly, who is the Senior Vice President of Programs and Partnerships at Carbon Fund. Um, Welcome, Linda. We're so glad to have you. Hi, Christy. Hi, Monica. How are you all both? We are great. We've been looking forward to this conversation. Thanks. I have as well. Yeah. Um, we are just dipping our toes into carbon offsets and sustainability at Vector and thrilled to have you guys as our partners at Carbon Fund. And so we're excited to not only us to learn more today, but for everybody out there listening to learn more as well, because I love one of the things that you guys say is easy and affordable. Um, I think those are two great details when you're talking about carbon offsets and sustainability. I think everybody wants to make a difference, but easy and affordable are two really key aspects to making it simple. But before we jump into carbon offsets and carbon fund, um, let's talk a little bit about you. We want to learn more about you and your professional life. You have a super interesting background that I'm excited for everybody to hear more about. So tell us, first of all, let's start with those early years and your background. Where are you from? Where'd you grow up? And what was your life, early life like? (laughs) Okay, that means we're going to have to go way back. (laughs) You know, these seem to be the hardest questions for people to answer, too. (laughs) I'm actually... Currently in the city where I grew up, I grew up in Austin, Texas, uh, one of six children, um, lived here you know, all through my growing up years, and it was a wonderful, really a magical time to live in Austin. This is, I'm old, so this was in the 1960s and 70s, and we lived way, we started life way out in the country down on the lake, um, and one of the reasons that I've ended up at Carbon Fund and in the environmental services field is I, my mother was one of the original environmentalists. And so I have, you know, childhood memories, and there, again, there were six of us, of her taking us to a voluntary recycling center in Austin that she helped to establish in the mid-60s. And we would do things like tie up newspaper with twine and flatten aluminum cans so that they could be recycled at this center. So that really was a lot of my, you know, early influences in life. I went to undergraduate in Virginia and had degrees in in, uh, mathematics and economics my early career. I lived in Houston and Chicago and Connecticut, right outside New York City, and worked in human resources, outsourcing services, also did a stint in uh, residential mortgages and mortgage-backed security trading. Uh, And then about 12 years ago, I made a, a very intentional career change. I had moved from Connecticut to Vermont, where I live 
on 10 acres in a little log cabin and took the opportunity to go back to graduate school. So I went to back to graduate school at Vermont Law School and studied environmental law and policy. And that's really what brought me into the environmental services field. It's an area where I had done a lot of my personal volunteer work, working with, with organizations that were environmentally focused. And so this was an opportunity to enter as a career. And as soon as I graduated from that program, I joined Carbon Fund and 11 plus years later, here I am. Wow. Wow. Incredible. That's- you have such a unique background. So let me ask you, when growing up, did our Austin already have the Keep Austin Weird <laughs> motto? <laughs> it came along. Uh, it was a little more true then. than, <laughs> But it certainly you know, came along in the 60s and 70s. Interestingly, the couple that uh, really came up with that moniker from Austin subsequently moved to Vermont. Oh, and I actually met them once in Vermont, so... <laughs> Yeah, the and and then I picture when you say like Vermont, New Hampshire, all of those states, and then the fact that you lived in a log cabin, it's just so it's perfect and picturesque and exactly what you think of. Um, yeah, that's I have yet to visit those states, but they are on my list, especially during the fall. But I'm just picturing a syrup label <laughs> right now with the log cabin and everything. So, and then I love that early sustainability uh, background as well. It sounds like it was ingrained from the very beginning. Yeah, that's awesome. And you know a lot of places and have done tons of things from maths to environmental stuff. So, wow. (laughs) And I wanted to ask you uh, if there's another like specific story or lesson from your childhood that has shaped you to who you are today and what you're doing now. I mean, I know that your mom inspired you a lot since you were a child from what you just told us, but is there anyone else who inspired you or another story that you'd like to share with us about your childhood? Well, you know, again, my childhood was very much focused on being outdoors. You know, when you grow up in in Texas, a place that's so warm most of the year, and we lived on the lake. So we did a lot of swimming and water skiing and fishing and those types of things. Um, I love fishing. Fascinating grandmother on my father's side. My grandmother is one of 12 and actually grew up most of her years in a ranch near um, San Luis Potosí in Mexico, where my great-grandparents raised their 12 children. So my grandmother really grew up in that part of Mexico, again, very much in in the outdoor living and outdoor setting. Uh, She later went to college in Texas, met my grandfather, they married, and then My grandfather was transferred to Mexico City to open the first Chevrolet dealership. So my father moved there when he was two, and my grandparents lived in Coyacan, which is a a sub. Well, it used to be a suburb way south of Mexico City. Now it's in the city. (laughs) Not now. (laughs) Again, very much you know living on a hacienda with horses and and very much an outdoor focus. So I really think I had that my entire life. A very close connection with being outdoors, being in nature. My mother was a big birder and still is and has been her whole life. And so that that really does draw you out into nature. And I think that experience made me interested in conserving and protecting our natural environment. Yeah, especially when you know like outdoors in different countries. Uh, Well, I know San Luis Potosí and Mexico City and Coyoacán is just beautiful. It's no way in the outside of the city now, 
that it's beautiful to go for walks and visit different cafes, parks. And San Luis Potosí has uh, La Huasteca Potosina, which probably you know, it's full of different uh, trails and hikes and a lot of waterfalls, lakes, beautiful, like turquoise um, watercolor. It's just amazing. And then the, you go back to the U.S. and you have like all of this mix of getting different outdoors in different countries. It's just amazing that, you, that you're doing what you do now. So, yeah. wow. <laughs> Sounds like you definitely prefer uh, picturesque environments, though. <laughs> so good for you. Yeah, yeah. And again, it, one of the nice things about Carbon Fund and something that, that our team that we all agree on, you know, we wake up each day and feel like we're helping. Yeah. We're doing something positive. Yeah. Well, before we jump further into Carbon Fund, um, let's. You mentioned a few of your previous jobs um, and careers before joining the Carbon Fund staff. So, and it, they spanned quite a wide variety of industries as well. So, how did you kind of navigate one to the other? What took you on that path? You know, some of it was relocating with my husband who was moving for his job. And so I often had was the what we used to call the trailing spouse, but I was the one who typically had to change careers. Uh, so, you know, some of it was just kind of luck and timing. Yeah. But I had a pretty broad background with underpinnings of mathematics and economics. And yeah. so it was pretty easy mm-hmm. to um, purvey those skills into different industries. And why math and economics? I ask as someone who is really challenged in both of those areas. So how did you end up pursuing those two studies? Well, I, my undergraduate degree was at a liberal arts college. And so that was, to me, the most business-oriented degrees that I could pursue. And, and it turned out to be you know, very beneficial. I, I still use those skills very much today with Carbon Plan. We do a lot of calculations of Mm -hmm. carbon emissions so you know those the mathematics skills do come into play wow yeah and going back uh you mentioned that you have a master's of environmental law and policy uh so after being in math and all this economic stuff what made you want to pursue this advanced degree and what are some lessons that are very important that you learned as a result of this Yes, again, it was a very intentional desire to change industries. And so I knew while I had lots of good business background, I didn't have the academic training in environmental services or environmental policy. And part of it was I was living in Vermont and Vermont Law School offered this master's program. It's a one-year master's program. So it was a fairly simple program to pursue. Uh, and And I got to go back to campus as a 50-year-old, which was a lot of fun. And wow. yeah, I spent a lot of time getting to know my professors because it's a fairly small campus. But the training was very much focused on you know, various governmental regulations in the United States and other countries, you know, environmental protection agencies, regulations, and how those regulations get enacted once laws are passed. So it was very good training in very kind of broad but practical aspects of what goes on in the environmental services industry. And again, has definitely helped me in my work at Carbon Fund. Yeah, so you've been at, I mean, it sounds like 
definitely Carbon Fund is the culmination of all these years of study and practical experience and family experience. So how did you find them? How did you end up there? And what have the last, uh, I guess, 11 years, you said, what, have, what has that been like, especially as that industry, the sustainability movement, carbon offsets, everything has changed dramatically, especially as far as awareness over the last decade. What is, What was that journey and experience like? And um, what has the last decade been? Yeah, and so I found Carbon Fund just through a job posting. Oh, did not awesome. know the organization, nor did they know me. So there was no referral or anything. It was just kind of a, a cold job posting back when you could still do that. Yes. <laughs> uh, and once I joined the organization, it was very much just on the job learning. Yeah. Talking those first few months, I definitely remember every time I went to pick up the phone to call one of the businesses that worked with us, I thought, okay, you know, I don't know what kind of questions I'm going to get or whether I can answer them. But it was very much on the job training, understanding why companies are making these decisions. And the work that we do is pretty much exclusively in the voluntary carbon offset or carbon neutrality space. So we're not dealing with businesses and organizations that are required by any kind of regulations to make these choices to pursue carbon emission reduction in their business operations and to pursue carbon neutrality for some of those emissions. This is strictly something that businesses are doing out of a sense of obligation to the environment, out of priorities that match their own business ethic and goals, and also as a marketing tool to appeal to their clients, their customers, their own employees, their stakeholders, their investors. I think that's really been one of the most gratifying developments to live with, to experience over the past decade plus, is that that movement is just continuing to grow and it's continuing to strengthen. I mean, I I feel that the chief sustainability officer position at a company or anything to that equivalent, that's like the C-suite job of the 2010s and 2020s and and hopefully continuing just the way you know chief technology officer was around the the entry into the 2000s so that emphasis and the importance of having an environmental sustainability program within a company of any size of any industry has really uh, continued to strengthen and grow and has really supported our work and our efforts yeah. And yeah. for those who are not familiar, let's give, um, as we had to do for ourselves a little bit, can you give us just a carbon offsets 101 and kind of just tell us a little more about the mission and process um, that happens over at Carbon Fund? Sure. Do you want me to start with just a general overview of the Let's do it. Yeah. And then I'll mm-hmm. kind of talk a little more about, about carbon credits. Sounds terrific. Carbonfund.org Foundation, and then a half year old 501c3 environmental nonprofit. We were founded by Eric and Leslie Carlson, a husband and wife team that were working in U.S. governmental energy efficiency area and really had the vision to create an organization that would make it very simple and very affordable for businesses, organizations, institutions, foundations, and individuals from any industry, any location in the world, any size to work with us to understand their carbon footprint, assess their carbon emissions from various operations, pursue ways to reduce those emissions, very important stuff, 
And then for those companies that want to do more, that want to be able to make a claim of operational carbon neutrality in some part of their business or across all of their operations, they can make donations to Carbon Fund. And we use those donations to support third-party validated and verified voluntary carbon offset projects around the world that have gone through very strict reviews in order to be established to international requirements and maintain their operations to those requirements. We use those donations to purchase from those validated projects their verified carbon offsets in the same quantity as the emissions that the business or the donor is looking to neutralize. And we purchase those credits, all of which have their own unique serial numbers. And then we retire those serial numbers on the registry, the public registry that the standard for the project maintains. So that those emission reductions that that project has achieved are used. They're permanently retired from the marketplace. Mm -hmm. So what is that really doing? What does that really mean? If a business comes to us and they are shipping goods, and they've got 100 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions that we can calculate as associated with those shipping, the shipping of those goods, the sea shipments, the ground shipments, the rail shipments, whatever the source is. And they want to be able to say, we've, we've neutralized the negative environmental impact of causing those 100 metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions to be released into the air. They make a donation to Carbon Fund. We go to a project like a wind energy project in India or a small hydroelectric project in Chile that's producing electricity through hydroelectric means rather than coal or a rainforest conservation project in Brazil that's present, preventing rainforest from being clear cut for agriculture or livestock grazing and instead are protecting and improving the health of that forested land. All of those projects are doing something to reduce the amount of carbon dioxide emissions that go into the air. And those projects that go through this process to be validated and verified as a voluntary carbon offset project, then are able to unitize those quantities of emission reductions, and they are units of metric tons, that's simply the, the unit that's used globally, and they're issued serial numbers and they're able to sell those carbon credits. And that's how that project gets its funding to go forward and to continue to operate. It, it is funded by the sale of those credits. So the emissions caused by the company in one location are effectively neutralized by the reductions in emissions created by the project that is that through its activities is reducing carbon dioxide emissions. That's kind of the, the simplest way I can put yeah. it. And Carbon Fund was one of the original carbon offset organizations launched. Isn't that correct? We're, we're one of the earliest and certainly one of the earliest that, that is a non, non-for-profit. Okay. Okay. That was, yeah, I was also going to ask kind of now that we have seen, of course, especially over the last two decades, more uh, organizations like this spring up, what continues to be a differentiator for Carbon Fund. We researched multiple options before we landed with you guys, really loved what you were up to. But from your perspective, I'll also let you market a little bit as well. So tell us a little bit more about, um, yeah, just the the differentiator that, um, you know, why people like us come to people like you. 
for. And so I've, certainly I think the fact that we are a nonprofit organization is a differentiator. Uh, all of our financials are on our website and readily available. So we have a very transparent operation. We are also rated by organizations that evaluate charities like GuideStar mm-hmm. and Charity Navigator. And we maintain the highest ratings for the highest level of transparency with those organizations. So the nonprofit status is certainly one feature. The fact that we've been around for 18 and a half years. Yes. You know, yeah. Got so much experience in this industry. We are a lean team. We're a small team. And we're a highly tenured team. There's there's only seven of us. Okay. Wow. Two employees joined us last March. Oh. Over the first two hires we'd had in 10 years. The other five of us, of course, Eric has been here since the beginning. But the other five of us have been here 11 plus years. So we are a highly tenured staff. We all have graduate degrees in our very our respective fields. Uh, so we're highly tenured and highly trained yeah. at what we do. Um, if Eric were sitting in this chair, he would also tell you that he is a stickler for excellent customer service. And so we yeah. are an extremely responsive team. It is very rare that you won't hear back from one of us within a couple of hours of sending a note or an inquiry. So we are highly responsive. Quite often we get an inquiry from an organization and we respond and they tell us, wow, you know, you're the first person that answered us. And we, that's definitely part of our focus. It's also part of an environmental organization's mission. Yeah, that's, that's just great. And I want to, well, there are two things that you have mentioned that I would like to go back to. First, the last one, I mean, this proves you being only seven people for 18 and a half years doing this amazing job, it proves that we can make a lot of difference and impact, positive impact in the world on our own, or even if we're not a very big organization of if we don't have like a ton of people that is joining, but the seats are very important. And mm-hmm. like if we join efforts, even if it's just a small amount of people together with the with constancy and more time we can make a lot of good impact so congratulations on having such a great team doing all of this great work for all these years and and being a, a high quality team and high responsive and also i wanted to tell you you were mentioning that one of the the things that you like is that um there are companies that are trying to work with you because of their own ethics and because they're trying to do something good, not because they are obligated to. And that's actually one of the reasons why we decided to to partner with you guys, because we are trying to make, well, we, we are in the logistics industry and we're trying to make a good impact with our logistics, uh, logistics with purpose. So that's one of the main reasons that we partnered with you. Um, only, well, we have been working together only for a couple months now. But I also remember when I was doing this research of different offsetting companies, uh, and I found you. Yeah, you were very, very responsive because I spent a lot of time trying to reach to others and didn't get um, response, but. You guys answered all of my questions and sent me some material to read and to understand and even to look out um, of the different projects that you were doing in different parts of the world. And that's just amazing because you're neutralizing the um, CO2 tons 
in a lot of different parts of the of the world and that's great it again proves that you can make a lot of impact from anywhere so well sorry i'm just so happy about this and <laughs> so excited we're so appreciative of companies like vector global logistics that choose to work with us and just to give you kind of a summary of what we've accomplished together with all of our donors and business partners. We've worked with about 3,300 different businesses, organizations, institutions. We've received donations from about 750,000 individuals in our history. Those donations have done more than just carbon offset projects, but that's about 70% probably of what we do is support carbon offset projects. To date, we've supported 240 different projects in 25 different countries across all types, energy efficiency, renewable energy, land and forest conservation, reforestation projects. Together with our donors and supporters, we've neutralized about 40 billion pounds or 18 million metric tons of carbon dioxide emissions by supporting these projects and what they're accomplishing. So it's a team effort. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I mean, we are still learning because we're in the first uh, stages of working with you guys. So I wanted to ask you what have been some of the biggest challenges and misconceptions of getting more companies on board with your work? Well, you know, there's, if you read the news, if you paid attention to the COP26 <laughs> last fall, there certainly are two sides of the thought process mm-hmm. about carbon offsets. One thought process is this is letting companies off the hook. This is allowing companies not to do anything about their own operational missions. They can just go out and buy carbon offsets and get off the hook. The other side would be the side, the position that we take, which is carbon offsets and carbon offset projects are not the answer to the negative impact of climate change on our world, on our environment, but they are part of the solution. And our organization's motto is reduce what you can offset what you cannot, offset what you can't. And we stand by that. So we do require companies to be making steps to reduce their emissions. Most companies that come to us already are working on that. Mm-hmm. And so we, we always say, we want to be last. We want you to work really hard to look for alternative operations within your business that will reduce your carbon footprint before you start looking to purchase carbon credits in order to neutralize mm-hmm. the remaining emissions. So we really do want to deal with what currently, so currently when you ship products, there is no zero true zero carbon footprint option out there. There are things being developed. There are alternative fuel sources being developed. There's sustainable aviation fuel. Again, not zero carbon footprint, but certainly reduced. But in the meantime, your shipments are causing carbon dioxide emissions. And as Eric, our president says, you can choose to do nothing or you can do something. Mm -hmm. And so Mm -hmm. by supporting carbon reduction projects, you are doing something. You are helping those projects. Again, projects that go through these strict validation and verification requirements have to prove that they will be dependent upon the funding that they get from carbon, selling carbon credits, or the project would not go full. So that's really the other side. I don't think anybody in the carbon offsets industry or any project developer 
would claim that they have the answer, but we all believe that we're part of the solution. Mm, I love that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it too. Yeah, and you mentioned uh, it, all the great things that your partners along with the your team have accomplished. So wanted to also give you an opportunity to give a shout out. Give, can you give us a few names of the companies that have joined this effort? I know there's a lot of really recognizable ones. And then um, I also know that... It, you know, tell us a little bit more why you mentioned a little bit earlier, and maybe you can expand on it a little bit, why individuals and companies, why they're joining, you know, I I would assume interest has skyrocketed over the last 10 years since you've joined. So what is that interest? So who are a few of your great partners that you're working with? And why do you think interest has skyrocketed over the last couple of years? Well, we've, again, we've worked with an awful lot of organizations, so I'm just going to pull some off the the top of my head. Uh, So for instance, we work with Amazon Mm -hmm. on their Climate Pledge Friendly Initiative, which is a product level carbon neutrality program where our certification that a product itself has fully neutralized its carbon footprint is one of the sustainability uh, certifications that Amazon recognizes. For many years, we've worked with some big names in the transportation industry. We've worked with Amtrak and JetBlue for 10, 12 years. And JetBlue has been a real leader in neutralizing fuel consumption for all of its U.S. domestic flights, just as an example. Um, We've worked with Bristol-Myers Squibb. We've worked with um, Dell. We work with Motorola. We work with... Uh, in financial investment firms like the Carlisle Group. Mm-hmm. In your industry, we work. We are very proud to work with Vector Global Logistics, but we work with C.H. Robinson, and we work with Convoy, and we work with Flexport, and we work with Flockfleet. So there, there has been more interest yeah. in the logistics industry over the last few years. We also work with, you know, a one-person entrepreneur yeah. that... Mm offers a consulting service or has created their own product. So we work with businesses of all sizes from you know all corners of the world. Yeah, I love that it's easy to see on your website. I, to be honest, I would never have thought as an individual of going to your website and looking at carbon offsets. So I was really surprised and excited to see that, that, you know, as one person, you're showing how you can make a difference, how you can offset, how you can calculate. Um, And it's really easily broken up on your website as well. Like, are you under 20 people? Are you under this many people um, to Mm -hmm. offset your company's travel in addition to shipments or anything like that? So it's a really, there are a lot of really fantastic tools on there. And um, as you said, the original vision was also to make it uh, easy, accessible. And as Moni pointed out, one person can certainly make a difference. And it's very easy to figure out what your impact is and how to take that step in doing something about it. So congratulations on um, one of the reasons that a great process. Sorry. One of the reasons we offer all those options is we try to meet the company where they are yeah. in their own sustainability journey. So we don't demand or require that you join at certain levels. There are different program benefits that we offer depending upon the level of carbon neutrality that a company is seeking. But we we will meet a company wherever they are in the journey. And one of the reasons we've had such long-term partnership relationships is we just continue to progress Mm -hmm. with you on that journey. Um, I would like, if I may, to bounce back to another differentiator. This is something that didn't, didn't really come up Previously, but another reason that I think a lot of businesses choose to work with us is that we not only support 
carbon credits and source them from projects where we have no direct involvement. Mm -hmm. But our team also has always been in the project development area. Mm -hmm. So in our early years, we helped create some forest conservation projects in the United States. More recently, over the past eight to 12 years, our team has worked with local environmentalists, local landowners in Brazil, in the western state of Acre, Brazil, along tributaries to the Amazon River to conserve rainforested lands there. So we've helped to create and establish these projects that are reducing carbon dioxide emissions by avoiding the destruction and the degradation of critical Amazonian rainforest. Obviously, not only because Amazon rainforest is the lungs of the earth, referred to as the lungs of the earth with its carbon dioxide sequestration, but it's also the richest area in on the earth for biodiversity and flora and fauna. And when you're protecting rainforest land, you're protecting habitat mm-hmm. for the creatures that live there. We've also worked with the local communities that live on those lands and built schools and provided uh, sustainable agricultural training courses and employed some of the local uh, villagers into the projects and provided medical care. So there's also, when you're dealing with forest conservation-based projects, there's also a lot you can do for the surrounding community itself. So that expertise, the fact that we are also project developers and our team has written thousands of pages of the reports and documentation you have to submit, get, validated and to go through the annual or biannual verifications to prove that the project is still doing what it's supposed to be doing and the third party inspections and monitoring report. So we we're on both sides of the table, if you will. Yeah. We can we can determine that a project is of high quality and doing the right thing because we know how to read and review those documents which we've written for yeah. our own projects. So that's also, I think, a a big differentiator and and an important part of our expertise. Yes, that's great. And, well, I was just about to ask you about some wins that you have um, had from your work, but you kind of win (laughs) in that question. Yeah, the conservation of 750,000 acres, about 400,000 hectares of Amazonian rainforest is a big win. Yeah, definitely. That's... That's just awesome. I love to visit the Amazons sometime. It's on my bucket list. So I'm I'm really glad to have more knowledge for when I visit. But besides the Amazonian project that is huge and amazing, what is another uh, project that you would consider like a win, a very big win for what you're doing? You know, there's there's a lot of projects around the country that we've supported on the, on an ongoing basis. So we've seen projects that, for instance, in the United States, projects that are based on a, a, a landfill mm-hmm. that then decides to establish itself as a methane gas capture project. And they have to install the piping and the equipment that's used to suck that gas down out of the landfill. So we work with projects that have done just that step and others that then go the next step and capture that methane gas, run it through scrubbers and processors into a generator and generate electricity. Wow. And others that have gone even another step further and installed biodigesters that receive food production waste 
Wow. So in addition to the methane gas they're capturing from the landfill, they're able to receive additional food production waste like slurry from a tomato packaging company. That's so and cool. I would have never yeah. imagined that. So it's, it's when we work with these projects kind of year over year, it's interesting to watch them evolve. Yeah. Uh, a lot of the forest conservation projects in the United States are what's considered improved forestry management projects. And so they're implementing new techniques that improve, they don't just conserve the land, but they improve the health of the land. And so they're clearing invasive species and they're doing strategic timbering to open up the canopy of a forested land to allow more trees to grow. I mean, sometimes you do have to call out the older trees that may be in poor health mm. in order to allow more trees to grow. So it's it's been very gratifying to watch those types of projects that are actually increasing the carbon dioxide sequestration of that forested land because they're improving the health of that land. Uh, a lot of people have heard about things like the efficient cook stove projects that we see across African countries and some countries in Asia and some countries in Central America that are bringing a new technology to an area that's had a very traditional lifestyle of heating and cooking over an open fire, mm-hmm. gathering firewood, burning firewood, releasing carbon dioxide emissions, not to mention creating caustic, smoky environment for that family, yeah. just yeah. You know, in, uh, impeding lung health mm. and vision health, et cetera, because of burning woods and bringing these efficient cook stoves into those communities so that they have an alternative method. Now, there are other projects that have actually developed technologies that make it really, really simple to take available water from streams and rivers and lakes that might otherwise not be completely potable, not be completely safe to drink, but through very simple filtration technology, deliver those equipments to communities that's vastly improved the health of that community. Again, not boiling that water and reducing the carbon dioxide emissions through burning wood, and they're instead using these filtration processes. So very uh, rewarding to work with these new concepts and these new ideas. Right now in the marketplace, there's a lot of conversation about carbon removal Mm -hmm. projects. Most of these are still very much under development, but there Mm -hmm. are technologies that are being developed that hopefully will figure out how to literally suck carbon dioxide emissions out of the air. Other projects that are looking at permanent sequestration by pumping those emissions underground. Not so sure about that one myself, but we're watching the development. There are projects that are helping uh, small landowners and farmers look at regenerative agricultural methods and how those can become carbon offset projects. There are projects that are considered blue carbon that are more focused on water or shore-based conservation of mangroves or peat moss, et cetera. So there's a lot that's continuing to develop in the marketplace, which again is very exciting. Do you have, um, since companies get to choose the types of projects they invest in, have you seen any trends for the types of projects people are most interested in right now or the areas geographically either? 
You know, that really depends on each company. Okay. So often a company is matching that to other aspects of its mission or its goal or its ethos. And yeah. so if a company sources products from a certain portion of the world, they may choose to support renewable energy projects in that part of the world. If they are a uh, food or beverage company that's very plant focused, mm-hmm. then they may be more interested in forest conservation or reforestation projects. If it's an industrial technologies company, then they may really want to focus on some of those newly created technologies that are doing the same work using less fossil fuel or creating fewer emissions. So it really does vary quite widely. Um, The challenge that that we have is that voluntary carbon offset uh, projects are not on every corner of the globe. So we have a lot of companies that say, we want something in our backyard. And we have to say, there's nothing in your backyard. Look in your backyard, yeah. <laughs> so we have to say, instead of that, you know, what about this option? So yeah. that is a big part of what our team does, is constantly work with the project developers, the project owners, the par- project marketing firms that we know, and the business partners and new businesses who come to us with their choices and preferences and have to... We have to try to aggregate all those donations, match them up with the available projects and their available inventory, and try to get the best price, both for the project and for the business partner. Yeah. So you're a little eco-matchmakers. Yes. Yeah, we are. (laughs) Um, So we talked a little bit about the past and your past as well. We talked a lot about the present, but I'd love to hear you have such a unique background, not only educationally, but experience wise. And then having been in this industry and seen it explode over the past decade. So I'd love to hear either trends you think are coming down the pipeline for the future, maybe what you're hopeful for, but looking ahead, what is it? What is it you see or maybe even want to see? Well, again, I think we're very excited about some of the new areas for project development. Super creative. So expansion of both the available number of projects and inventory projects, but also the type of projects. There are a lot of new, well, not new, but but newer, let's say, um, sustainability efforts that are focused on things like nature-based solutions and net zero emissions. And so there's a lot of emphasis on not just carbon dioxide avoidance or reduction, but on true removal. And so again, this is where new reforestation, afforestation projects, which take years to establish and have some risks. The project has has to thrive. It has to avoid natural disasters in order to thrive. And it takes five to 10 years for that project to get going. So some of these newer technologies, again, some of the carbon removal strategies that we talked about, some of the, uh, I'm very excited about some of the projects that are geared to smaller tracts of land for private landowners to continue to be able to conserve their 20 or 50 or 100 acres of land by, again, employing improved forest management to increase the carbon dioxide sequestration of those smaller tracts of land. Um, as well as things that farmers can do, regenerative agriculture methods. So a lot of those new trends we think are very exciting. Mm -hmm. They're all needing to get through some processes. There are new standards, new verification programs that are being established 
for these newer technologies. So it's a little bit of a race. Yeah. Can, yeah. The, can the international standards come up with best practices for these newly developing options and strategies mm-hmm. for carbon emissions, removals, reduction, sequestrations? So that's certainly an exciting trend. I think continuing the spread of the emphasis on business operational sustainability mm-hmm. is very important. And again, I'll, I look to your industry, the logistics industry, clearly you know, you're, a, you're an industry that, that does kind of work as a group, yeah. you know, that, that there's been an awful lot of logistic companies that have come into wanting to make these programs available to your clients. So not leaving it to your client to figure out, right. but creating a program then you can offer to your clients. Mm-hmm. I was so, telling you about that too. You mentioned a couple of times right now, of course, offsets are optional. Do you foresee a time when it is not optional, when it will be a requirement? People should go ahead and start taking those steps. Of course, we recommend that anyway, but just curious if the optional being left on the table or you think things will change. You know, we we continue to hope yeah. that various countries will pursue some federally regulated uh, carbon emission reduction strategies, including the United States. So we know those discussions are still underway. When I was going through my graduate program in 2009 and 10, there was a lot, there were a couple of different bills about carbon cap and trade programs and carbon emission of ceiling and reduction programs. And those did not make it through US legislation, but we know that those conversations continue. And so we certainly hope so. And yes, it's going to behoove a company to begin their journey. Uh, what concerned me the most a few years ago was we started seeing a lot of companies and I'll use a American football mm-hmm. analogy, do what I consider throwing the flag down the field mm-hmm. and saying, we've committed to be being carbon neutral by 2050. Yeah. Okay, that's great. But if you don't start today mm-hmm. and your reduction strategies and in identifying areas that you can't reduce, that you need to neutralize now so that you put into place the discipline and the budget you're going to wake up, it's going to be 2050, and yeah. it will be unachievable. So we yeah. do love to see companies taking these steps and beginning this process. Again, another reason that what the logistics industry and what companies like Vector Global Logistics is doing is so important because you're giving your clients that step. You know, you're, you're saying, at the moment, we've reduced as much as we can through energy-efficient vehicles and fuels, et cetera, and the best routing and the best logistics management, we're still emitting. Mm-hmm. So here is our way to help you yeah. neutralize those emissions. So, that, you know, that's that's a very important step. Yeah, it definitely is. And Linda, we're getting to the end of this episode, but before we go, uh, I have two more questions. First, uh, if some of our listeners wanted to volunteer with you, because there's a lot of reasons to reach out to you and to connect uh, for taking the first steps uh, to working with Carbon Fund as a company, but also for trying to volunteer in the areas, for example, in the Amazons or Chile or other places where you're doing great stuff, even here in Mexico. So if anyone wanted to volunteer, is that possible? And how would they do it? Yeah, so we get this question a lot. Um, With a lot of environmental nonprofit organizations, there are great volunteer opportunities. 
for instance, we support tree planting projects, but the projects we support, we do not run. There are other organizations, and these are huge scale projects. Um, let's take the Amazon, for example. Our team just got back from three weeks in the Amazon about two weeks ago. It's the first time they were able to go there in two years. This is, you know, a flight, a Jeep ride, a dugout wooden canoe, uh, hip high rubber, venomous snake boots. Uh, wow. This trip, I think every single member of the trip either got injured or became ill. So, I mean, this is not easy. This is the jungle. Yeah. Yeah. Gone. So it's, frankly, it's usually not very possible to volunteer on site. Mm-hmm. The other example would be either one of those methane uh, landfill gas capture projects I mentioned, or picture a wind energy farm. Those are commercial operations. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. You know, if you've ever had a volunteer come into your organization, you spend more time keeping them <laughs> out of harm's way than you yeah. do. Yeah. So frankly, it's not usually possible to do any on-site volunteering with a voluntary carbon offset project because of the size, scope, scale, type, and location of these projects. What we work with companies to do quite often is to create challenges within their workforce. And so come up with certain goals that your workforce can implement and challenge each other on reducing the amount of paper that you're using in the office reducing the, the number of times that you drive, that you commute to the office rather than walk or ride or take public transit or ride a bike. So we, we can help companies come up with those kinds of internal challenges, which frankly, in some ways are more effective because that's, that can make lasting impacts and changes within a company's own operation. Mm-hmm. And then they can use those reductions to raise funds to donate to one of the carbon offset projects. So that's that's more often the type of volunteer activity that we help with. Good. It's very interesting. Yeah. Also. <laughs> and so hard to do it. And well, so hard to go to the different places as you mentioned. I I that was not in my mind. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. But, There's a lot of logistics involved when you when you're looking at forest conservation. Yeah. And well, how can our listeners connect to you? And well, of course take their first steps with Carbon Fund as a company or as an entrepreneur? Yeah, I mean, they certainly can contact me directly. We have a website with various ways to get in touch with us. And as I said, we're more than happy to talk with any business, any organization about their journey in sustainability and really help find their best path and best starting point. So I don't know whether you want to want me to Say my email address, or you simply want to provide it as part of the. We'll put it in the notes, but everybody yeah. can, of course, go to carbonfund.org, and it's their website is extremely nav- easy to navigate, and Linda's info is right there. Yeah, and we've got a contact us page where you can tell us sort of the subject that you're interested in, and that gets rooted to the to the correct one of us to get back in touch with you. Awesome. And I'm curious as well, just as we wrap up here, we've talked about a lot of different ways. I love that you brainstorm with companies to figure out how to create change um, for their teams internally and, and create behavior change as well. Often people want to do something, um, but they don't know what to do. It's overwhelming if you, especially if you have a large company or a large workforce, um, you have lots of business goals. 
how, what is a good small first step for somebody to, for one of our, our listeners to take as they're thinking about um, all the ways they can help, should help, want to help, but what is kind of the most practical, actionable advice you'd give somebody to get started? And so again, we're talking about a company. Sure. Yeah. yeah. So again, for companies, the first, I think the first step is to, <clears throat> to understand your own operations and where you're causing carbon dioxide emissions to occur. So anywhere that you're using a fossil fuel, you're causing carbon dioxide emissions to occur. You are you own or you lease or you rent office space. That's using electricity and heating fuel of some sort. So there's one place that you could identify your emissions. Your employees are normally commuting to the office <laughs> and often business traveling. Again, until the technology provides us with zero carbon footprint travel, that's creating travel emissions. You're shipping products. Products are being shipped to you that you're using or products are being shipped to you as part of your manufacturing process. And then you're shipping out product, products. And so again, this is where your, your global logistics firm comes into play. Mm-hmm. But until we completely neutralize emissions associated with product shipments, that's an area mm-hmm. that you can focus on. So those, those are probably the three biggest, easiest. Yeah is for any company to approach. Perfect. Yep. And there are calculators on your website that, again, make everything really easy to use and easy to figure out. Um, thank you so much for your time, Linda. This has been great. I know Money and I probably learned a lot just sitting here for the last hour listening. Uh, you certainly have a breadth of experience and we're, uh, we love partnering with you guys. We're excited to keep it going further, keep educating ourselves, our team, um, our clients on how they can get involved. But thank you for all the terrific work you're doing. We are so appreciative and thank you so much for joining us today. All right. Well, thank you both for hosting this. I really appreciate it. And I guess since this is airing in April, Earth Month, yes, a wonderful time to get started if you haven't gotten started yet. Absolutely. There's no better time. Well, thank you. And thank you for everybody for listening or tuning in. Um, If you enjoy the Logistics with Purpose episodes, then be sure to hit subscribe and we'll have another great conversation for you soon. Thanks so much. Thank you.